Request for Startups is a show with tech insiders about products and companies that should exist but haven't yet. Listen first, then build. Hi, everyone. On today's Request for Startups, we're sharing a conversation I recorded with Balaji Srinivasan about navigating the idea maze. Balaji shares frameworks for when to start a company, how he validates ideas, and what to look for in a co-founder. So Balaji, thank you for for joining. I want to talk about uh, three things with you. Uh, Career transitions, uh, picking startup ideas, and and co-founders. Why don't you start by sharing your thoughts on career transitions? One is when, when to when's the right time to leave a company? And then two, how do we think about whether to start or to join a company? Any, any framework for that? Okay, well, so first, for anybody who's working at Coinbase, you should never leave until Brian gives you a thumbs up, okay? But uh, so, you know, like it's good to stick it through and so on and so forth. I'd say things that I found in terms of timing that, um, so you sort of have to trade off, uh, you know, kind of exploitation versus exploration, right? In the sense of the K-Arm Bandit, if you guys know what that is. It, the Karen Bandit concept, it's from math. Imagine you, you went to Las Vegas and you had a row of slot machines, okay? And you didn't know their payoffs, each of them. What you do is you'd walk up to the first one and you start yanking the thing and maybe it pays off 50% of the time, it gives you a dollar, 50% of the time you lose money. But maybe the one next to it, one in a thousand times, it gives you a million dollars, but the rest of the time you lose money. The second one actually has a better payoff, but it might take longer to figure it out versus the first one, Okay. And this is the concept of balancing your scarce resource, which is how many years of career you have uh, or months um, versus your maximal payoff in, in some sense, right? Um, and that doesn't have to be money. I- importantly, it can be learning and, and so on and so forth. So one thing you don't want to do is you don't want to switch so frequently that you don't like that, you, that you're quitting, right? You just want to accomplish something. My general kind of way of thinking about it is uh, I stop when I've stopped learning, um, and you know what I've done in the past. So I've been, I've been both grad student and you know undergrad and grad student and lecturer uh, and online lecturer. I've been engineer and CTO. I've been hired and hiring manager. I've been entrepreneur and founder. And I've been angel investor and venture capitalist. I've been security tester. And I've been on the other side, you know, like basically setting up the NSA like surveillance to catch people. And so I think that's the second aspect. The first thing is optimized for learning. The second thing is optimized for um, being on both sides of the table, and then you gain empathy for the other person, uh, and you understand what their incentive structure is and why they're not actually being, you know, a bad person if they're if they're disaligned with you. They just have a different incentive structure. Um, and the third, I would say, is you know to do something that, uh, and this kind of relates to your your third question, Eric. Do you guys anybody know the Japanese concept of ikigai? Ikigai basically it's like uh, the intersection of four things. I think it's what you're good at, uh, what can make you money, uh, what the world needs, and what you're passionate about. Right. So your skills. So, you know, what you love. Right. So that that that, you know, what you're what you're personally interested in, what you're skilled at, uh, what you can monetize and then what the world needs. Right. So so that's a useful framework where, you know, it's funny. Sometimes you can actually spreadsheet this out and you can list all the things you've ever thought about doing and you score them on those four axes. And for example, if there's two things that you're neutral on but one of them pays much more than the other, you might select that one, right? Or if there's two things you're neutral on, but one of them is something the world really needs and the other one isn't, then you, you might choose that one. So this is kind of, you know, how I also think about switching is uh, to, to make sure I'm constantly optimizing, you know, for learning and for Ikigai. Okay, maybe a long answer, but go ahead. Um, so for people who are like Soups, I just pick on Soups, for example, he, he left Coinbase, then joined another company, then started his own company, which we're happy to be investors in. But 
how, how do you advise people who are leaving Coinbase, let's say that their time is up and to think about whether they should start or, or join something? What are the, the frameworks they should be thinking about or, or how do they know? Well, I mean, it's, it's about your specific personality. I mean, personally, I found that, um, you know, the only kinds of things I can do, like, like founding a company is so hard that you really, you know, there's folks who now kind of do it in almost like a pre-professional way, like, okay, let me get my MBA by founding something. Um, in VC, you know, you'll often hear associates say, oh, I want to be an operator. I'm like, operate what? You know, like, I, I'm sure Elon didn't think of himself as, oh, I'm going to go and be an operator next. It's like, he wanted to build something he couldn't buy, which was a trip to Mars, right? And I think the level of difficulty, psychological difficulty, you know, and, and, and frankly, economic irrationality in the middle of doing a startup is something that you really can only do if it offers you non-economic ideological rewards, at least, at least for someone like me. And that's because... In the middle of doing a startup, uh, there are a bunch of, um, you know, what, what Anderson Hartz calls WIFIO moments, okay? WIFIO means we're fucked, it's over, okay? And uh, there's many, many of those moments, especially in the early stages of a startup. And I've actually figured out why. There's actually a mathematical reason as to why that is the case. Small sample sizes cause stress, okay? So in your life, you can think of all of these different interfaces around you. For example, you have one manager, or you have uh, three investors, or you have five customers, right? Or you have only two people covering you in the press or whatever, right? Like anytime you have small sample sizes, then if one of those people goes south on you, you've got a problem, okay? Now, um, so for many people who are employees, if your manager goes south on you, you have a problem, right? For a founder, it's different. If they're investors or their customers or their employees, if enough people go south on you, you have a problem, but at least you've now diversified it so that there's you know, maybe three points of failure or 10 as opposed to one. This is also why as a company scales, certain kinds of things that used to be super stressful early on aren't as stressful. Like if a, if a customer cancels an account in a rage on, on Twitter and you only have 10 accounts, that's like a big deal. That's 10% of your revenue. Are you going to lose more customers, et cetera? If you've got 10 million accounts, like Zuck, you know, like Zuck probably sees someone scream at him every single day or whatever, delete Facebook, or a few, whatever. And, and frankly, it's like rounding error. You have to, he actually has to look at the stats to see if it's, if it's real. So scale can actually de-stress things, but not everything. Because, you know, like you're not going to be able to scale, uh, you know, there's always some interfaces in your life where you, you can't scale them indefinitely. Like, you know, you're, um, if you're an employee, you're, you're usually only going to have one manager, for example, right? So my point being that when you, when you start a company, you have all these small sample size interfaces and the stress level is quite high. And many of them will go south on you. And the rational thing is to quit. That I say the expectation of what your success will be after that point is, is low. And really, honestly, the reason to persist at that point is a sense of, you know, dogged perseverance, ideological zeal, uh, you know, like desire to never be, you know, never take a loss, right? And just like doggedness. And so you need a really weird mix of hyper economic rationality, like to be able to look at the numbers and calculate them out and economic irrationality and ideological zeal. And I can say that, but to make those choices in the moment is, is challenging. For example, early Coinbase had a moment where, uh, you know, they, they woke up and some guy was like hacking their account. And uh, had they finished the hack, they would have taken all the money and that would have bankrupted early Coinbase and no one here would be around, okay? Um, there, there's a concept in this, by the way, that comes from um, evolutionary genetics, population genetics. It's called uh, the fixation probability. Basically, there's, there's some mutations which are selectively advantageous. For example, they, you know, uh, maybe they increase your immunity to infectious diseases or, or something like that. 
basically, if you have a good idea for a startup, okay, it might have some advantage over other startups, but you might just die from random chance before you can show your stuff. Okay. That's, that's a concept of genetic drift versus natural selection. If you guys see the, the black curves there, right? Those are when a mutation arises and UG has like, you know, a, a mutation that gives him higher strength or something like that. And he passed it down to like two children and then four, but then they all die out. They're hit by, you know, lightning or something like that. And then the mutation goes to zero. Then it arises again and it goes to zero. Once in a while, though, it gets to a critical mass and then it goes all the way to the entire population. All in people have it. Okay. And so lots of good ideas for startups, especially now in Corona times, are just getting killed, wiped out by random chance. Okay. And you have to ask yourself when you're founding a company, am I going to zero because it's random chance? Uh, or am I going to zero because I just like, you know, like I just need to will to power it and boost the selection probability and go up. Right. So this, by the way, is also my mental framework for thinking about luck versus skill. Right. Luck is the random bad fortune that drives you to zero. And skill is the will to power that takes you to infinity. And, and really, both of them are drivers, right? You really can have bad luck. But another way I think about it is, you know, luck is having the coin come up heads and hard work is flipping the coin 100 times. So, um, you know, in, in terms of thinking about founding something, if you're so insane that you'll flip it 100 times, then, then you might be able to get somewhere. But you shouldn't be so insane that you flip it 10,000 times because then you're sticking with the wrong thing. Hey. We'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. The tech world turns to the Brave browser for its unbeatable privacy protections. But did you know that Brave also has a private ad platform? Brave Ads offers first-party targeting, and it's been cookie-less since day one. So you can relax while third-party tracking cookies disappear from the web. Today, millions of people turn to ad blockers to avoid being tracked and pestered online. But Brave's new ad model aligns incentives for users and advertisers. Users earn rewards for viewing ads, which they can save, spend, or pass along to their favorite creators. And advertisers score points for respecting user privacy, generating ROI without invasive tracking. So whether it's high-impact announcements on the new tab page or keyword-targeted ads in Brave Search, Brave offers diverse, private, future-proof ad formats for all your business goals. Join the future of advertising at brave.com slash ads. Mention MOZ when signing up for a 25% discount on your first campaign. Yeah, let's double down on ideas for a second. So, so two questions. Basically, on you know, if you worked at Open Door or Coinbase, you have some expertise and access in real estate or crypto or, or fintech. You know, those are broad spaces individually. How, how do you recommend people sort of Pick, bet- pick between them or, or begin to navigate them. And separately, or secondly, what's your sort of COVID request for startups list or COVID anti request for startups that you hinted a little bit in that some of the, some businesses are no longer, you know, relevant. But I, yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, it was, uh, so the second was COVID request for startups. The first was like, how do I generate ideas? Like, how do I think about that? Yeah, and, and pick um, between them, validate them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I have this um, post that, you know, people have liked uh, called the idea maze, or rather it's a, it's a an idea is not a mock-up. A mock-up is not a prototype. A prototype is not a program. A program is not a product. And a product is not a business. And a business is not profits, right? Now, you know, one thing you'll often hear is, you know, some friend who's not in tech will be like, oh, I had an idea for, for Facebook 10 years ago. I could have made a billion dollars, whatever. You know, people will say this kind of dumb stuff. And the way to, like, kind of just shut them down, because really what they're basically saying is, I had an idea to dunk. I could be LeBron, right? And it's just not the same thing. 
the napkin drawing of the billion-dollar concept. The idea is actually important. I'll come back to when it's important. But the napkin drawing of a billion-dollar concept, by the way, sometimes it is, even though I'm kind of saying it in a facetious fashion, Uber was a billion-dollar concept, so the napkin drawing was valuable. Time, one minute, right? To make a wireframe with all user screens, that's actually some effort. That's like a day, okay? Then to actually get an ugly hack, you re-snap here, no code or whatever, that's a weekend. Then clean code, that's like, like at least a couple of weeks to a month. Then, you know, you start doing design and copywriting and pricing and the physical components can take you a few months. I mean, obviously you can launch it faster than that, but it's going to take physical, take a while. Then you're doing incorporation and filings and payroll. A lot of this stuff has sped up since the time that I posted this, which was seven years ago. But, but the concept is still there, right? Essentially, like each step there is a significant increase in the amount of time and energy to take this kernel of a concept and turn it into a business, Okay. And so, you know, what you should expect to do is generate tons of ideas that you leave at the base of the mountain, okay? You need to be super, super generative because most of them you're not going to want to spend five years of your life on, okay? So that's kind of first concept about ideas is there's a huge difference in the idea and the execution, and this is a way of quantifying that. Now, with that said, if you scroll down a little bit, like there's kind of thesis, antithesis, synthesis on this. Um, So the thesis is kind of the, the, like the East coast conventional wisdom. Oh, you know, like the, you know, I have nothing against wink losses by the way, but basically, Oh, you know, you invented Facebook without inventing Facebook, right? Like, or the, the, the IP matters, the idea matters. This is like the kind of people who think, Oh, the researcher who came up with the drug is the same as a pharma company that actually got through regulatory and shipped and scaled and, and replicated that academic research, much of which actually doesn't replicate. There's a huge, huge gap between those things. The, the delusion here comes from the fact that people think of writing something down is the same as doing it. Now, the other side of it is, you know, kind of the Silicon Valley month, right? It's not the idea, it's execution. And that's like Bob Metcalf's thing over here. But I will come back to like a 70-30, which is the following. There's some ideas that are like, um, compare, I have an idea for a social network for pet owners to, I develop a low cost way to launch objects into space, Okay. The former is is a completely undefensible thing where everything is in the execution of it. Can you actually grind through, acquire customers, and so on and so forth? The latter may need some fundamental physical insight, right? Like through deep study, through equations, and so on, you actually have something real, okay? Some machine learning startups may be like that, for example. So you, you shouldn't, like, underrate the idea to such a level that you think it's all execution because execution has not just a magnitude of how hard you work, but a direction of where you're pointing it. And so that's like my thesis and synthesis. Idea is the direction, execution is uh, kind of the magnitude along the direction. Of course, you know, the faster you move, the faster you can change directions and so on and so forth. Okay. That's the so second, second thought. Okay. Oh, second, uh, which is basically that you want to kind of generate a bunch and, and move this. And the third thing uh, with respect to ideas is just that um, you don't necessarily need to be super creative. The best thing to ask uh, when you're generating ideas is how are you different from the general population? Okay, for example, you guys are all employees of thousand-person companies. Most of, the, most of you are, at least at Coinbase, right? So you are seeing obvious workflow challenges within a thousand-person tech company that the vast majority of people on the face of the planet are not seeing. And so anything that you run into, which is a problem specific to your job or to your personal experience that you think of as rare, you should write that down. Now, um, the flip side of this is like, you know, apps for college students, that's a totally different kind of market. That's something where it's just true Lord of the Flies, extremely difficult. Like Snapchat and Facebook are very, very challenging uh, because there's a thousand different people who are trying to do that. Lots of college students with free time. 
a way to make it more defensible is to take your personal experience and, and arbitrage your personal experience. Okay, go ahead, Eric. If, if you wrote this today, besides the, the faster, you know, everything's quicker, um, would it be meaningfully different? Not really. I, I think um, I think some of the things have been sped up uh, because you know you you can incorporate online. Stripe is there. No code is there. I'd probably advise no code and and like online services much more, right? Because you can get pretty far with that. I might also say that you know, and this is a third model, uh, which is uh, you might start with the community. So there's idea, there's execution, then there's a community, right? So uh, you know, nowadays. Um, so I, I, I've got a following on my on my Twitter and my MOOC or what have you, and some of the interaction with them is sort of like, you know, person community fit, right? And then that community can bootstrap a protocol, it can bootstrap a product, and and so on and so forth. And that's something I was just less thinking about back in 2013 than I have today. Uh, but that might be a third angle on things, you know, to go take a community first approach. And how about the COVID uh, request for startups or anti-request for startups? I'm going to show you this, and then I'll show you talking about my concept. So first, what is this graph? This is the Taleb graph of 1,001 days in the life of a Thanksgiving turkey. Life improves, 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 and then a ridiculous sudden reversal, okay? And we're seeing Thanksgiving Day charts across the economy, and we're the turkey. Uber is orange, okay? And look at that ridiculous Thanksgiving Day drop. And Uber Eats, by the way, has risen dramatically, right? So Uber is now essentially just Uber Eats. Their second business has become their first. That's literally their business, okay? Now, the thing about this is uh, that's a reversal no business can plan for. You know, like fortunately for Uber, at least the corporation, they can just disengage drivers when demand plummets like this. But uh, but that's like a, you know, ridiculous drop, right? Like a 70% drop in revenue. However, here's the thing. Notice how Uber dropped, but not Uber Eats. One of the things I was short on was Uber, but not Uber Eats. I think it's pretty good. It's pretty specific as a prediction, right, in terms of what to be long and short on. And frankly, uh, you know, I never talk about trades online because that's investing advice or whatever. But let's just say that if you had reallocated your portfolio and listened to me around that time, you would have done pretty well, right? So, like, you know, for example, x-rays, drones, antiviral, CT scans, autonomy, diagnostics, face masks, remote work, telepresence, bioinformatics. I think that holds up. VR is the only one of those, where, and drones may have put an asterisk on, simply because there's such supply chain disruption that the demand may be there, but not, not the supply. We'll have to see if you can make VR headsets in the U.S., but everything else is clearly you know, going, especially like, you know, like remote work stuff, Zoom and stuff, obviously. And then on the short side of things, uh, I think that holds up pretty well as well. Uh, travel, Tinder, Grinder, hotels, Airbnb, airlines, in-person, you know, blue cities, uh, come back to that point, but... Real estate is crashing, commercial real estate in blue cities. Restaurants, conferences, digital nomads in the sense of moving around the world, you can't do that anymore. Uber, but not Uber Eats. So I think that holds up pretty darn well, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's like, let's call it part of a cognitive investing thesis. So if you guys may remember this concept of like the digital divide, right? This was a thing in the late 90s. Oh, you know, some people have access to the internet, others don't, right? So April 7th, I had this concept, which I think is one mental model, the physical divide right? Digital is now cheap with billions of smartphones around the world. It's the physical that's expensive, okay? So for the last 70 years, we've made the cost of putting a bunch of transistors on a chip that, you know, that's now cheap. But putting a bunch of people in a room is now expensive, okay? So the measure of a competent society is one that can actually hold a rally. If you can do that, you are, com- you are confident enough, and the people there are confident enough in the state and the diagnostics and so on, 
that, you know, you can have this huge crowd that is being tested to within an inch of their life and they all come and congregate there, right? For, for an incompetent state uh, and for a citizenry that is not cooperative, uh, the commons are a tragedy. And you can't, like, basically there's just a, a failed state in between your house and the next person's house. You have to wear a mask. Uh, you, you know, you, you basically have a, you know, like, like a place where you can't show your face. Uh, you, you know, maybe it's pollution, maybe it's infection. It's, it's not, the commons aren't actually traversable. So I think this is a powerful mental model for the next several years, at least, that physical is expensive. And one thing that means, by the way, is, you know, digital is now cheap, physical is now expensive. So everybody is going to want a software substitute for things because, uh, you know, so I had another tweet, by the way, that I was really surprised people wilded out about. So I, have, I have one more question for you, uh, which is uh, co-founders. Are we sort of in the uh, picking co-founder era similar to sort of dating before Tinder and that you're limited to the people that you, you know, went to college with or worked with? Or is that for a co-founder, is that actually good? Should you stick to that pool? How do you think, what's your framework for picking the right co-founder? Yeah, you know, so, so like the way I kind of think about this is um, having, and I'm speaking as like an investor and having seen like lots of these things and, and whatnot. So you should pick somebody who, who is complimentary to you, okay? And um, there should always be like a clear CEO. That's like the most important component. The, the thing about that is, uh, like the question of who's the CEO, that's like one of the very first conversations you need to have. And ideally, it's something where that's obvious between between you. But if it's not, uh, you know, for example, at the beginning of Coinbase itself, this is public knowledge, but, you know, um, Brian and and the guy who helped co-found Blockchain.info, they had a disagreement over this. And you know what? They worked it out, right? And basically, Blockchain.info is a good company and Coinbase is a good company. But that type of stuff should be resolved. That was also an ideological dispute. Blockchain wanted to be able to have a wallet where they couldn't have the password and Coinbase wanted password reset. So that's actually somewhere the fork in the road was actually very substantive. It's two different visions of the future, both of which turned out to be legitimate visions of, of crypto, right? So true product difference on, on one simple thing, a password reset. So, so that's, that's like a good example of a few things. First, who's the leader? Second, what's the long-term ideological vision? Third, are skills complementary and so on and so forth. Um, I do know that these like co-founder dating sites or whatever, kids these days, you know, like, uh, I don't know. I don't know if that works. Uh, it, it feels, um, it could work, but it feels inorganic maybe. Um, you know, I think, I think the best thing to do is to actually work on a project with that person and find that there's a natural division of labor. Nothing substitutes for that because working with somebody is just very, very different from talking to them. Um, it's like, they have to catch the pass when you throw it, they have to intuit what you meant, not necessarily what you said, lots and lots of little things like that. Uh, they have to tolerate your idiosyncrasies because nobody's ever strong in every dimension, you know, or well, some people are, but few. And, and so I think actually doing and shipping a project, ideally one that involves money and customer support with them, like is, uh, is probably the best bet. And that could be a hackathon or something like that, but try to push it all the way through such that both of you have legal liability together or, or, or you know, customers yelling at you. That's a real trial by fire. Uh, Balaji, thank you so much for coming on. Give a digital round of applause for, for Balaji. Balaji.